listening to First Church Charlotte. Praise the Lord, everyone. So good to see you all on this cold Sunday morning that's nonetheless beautiful outside. Uh, you just have to dress for it, and then it can be beautiful. You might as well find beauty in it. It's going to be cold anyway, right? So find some beauty in it. It is a joy to be in the house of the Lord with all of you. And let's get right into uh, our, our Bible time together. Those of you joining us online, thank you for watching with us. Uh, we are in a series called Rebuild, and I, I should clarify why I called it Rebuild rather than Build. Uh, and that is uh, very much uh, thinking, praying, considering how it actually feels to try to take our life and give it to God, direct it toward the kingdom of God, spend it as currency in the purpose of God, and how that feels in our day-to-day -day life, our day-to-day -day existence. Last Sunday, we talked about Elijah as he is leading the people of Israel back uh, to their rightful covenant relationship with God, and how he gathers their attention after the prophets of Baal have already sought for Baal to answer by fire, and of course, nothing happened. And then Elijah does this odd thing. Uh, he gathers the attention of the people, and then for uh, quite a long time, he has them watch him rebuild the altar of the Lord. Now, now think about this with me just for a moment. He has gathered their attention, and he has said, you guys watch me now as I rebuild this altar of the Lord. I want you to be clear on this. The longest thing that happened was not the prayer for fire. That was only 70-odd words. That went really fast. The longest thing that happened was not fire falling. It did not descend like a helicopter very slowly and consume the fire. That happened fast. God answered by fire. What took the time? The Bible gives us this image of it happening between the midday and the evening sacrifice. This is several hours, several, um, how shall we say, hours of attention that the prophet has asked for. Imagine this. Imagine I say, hey guys, I'd like you to come to church and uh, I want your attention. And I gather everybody here, those of you who are kind enough to show up, you sit down and you look at me and I say, okay, hmm, uh, let's, let's study together. And I start studying for a message while you watch me. And you think to yourself, what, what, what do you mean the message isn't ready? I came to hear a message, and I was like, no, 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 you guys watch me study, and some time passes. You see, you see where I'm going with this? And you watch me study. If I spend more time studying than I do delivering the message, you have to decide that there was a lesson in more than the message. There was a lesson in the fact that I wanted you to watch me study. Okay, that is what is happening in this moment before the house of Israel. He gathers their attention, and then he says, let's rebuild the altar. Well, what's interesting about this is this is not how you keep people's attention. 
unless the message is something different than the lecture you're about to give. This is how you lose people's attention. You see, ideally, any communicator would, uh, it's so good to have Antonella here uh, with us today. We married her off recently, still mad about it, uh, but we love you and we're excited for your life. Um, Moving along, before I got distracted with my daughters in the church. So uh, (laughs) uh, here you have this this situation where if you want to lose people's attention, ask them to watch you prepare. Now that's what Elijah does. Most of the time is not spent in prayer. That's just 70 odd words. Most of the time is spent preparing the altar. What's the reality of this altar? The altar has been forgotten about. The altar has fallen into not just um, misuse or lack of use, it's falling into disrepair. And it is now simply known as a place that the people would have known and Elijah would have known, but the altar, as it were, is in crumbles, in a place where once it literally burned with the devotion, reverence uh, of the people in their devotion to God. And Elijah says, watch me rebuild this altar. Then we'll pray. Then we'll ask for a miracle. Then we'll ask for God to show up. But first, watch me rebuild this altar. Uh, All of us are building something with our lives. We are all of us choosing how we're going to live. We're choosing how we will spend our time. We all of us uh, have choices that we make on a daily basis. And the life that emerges is the life that flows naturally from our choices. This is why the apostle would say, and we'll read it later, look, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Uh, If you sow it, uh, you shall surely, what, reap it. Uh, He's not just saying this is true for you sinners. What you sow, you're going to reap. Uh, He is talking about a principle of the kind of life we choose to live. And let me surprise you, perhaps, and point out a truth that I am hoping to convey in this uh, this series that I am giving to you. And And the first reality is this. God will not build your altar. God will not build your altar. Uh, Let me very quickly talk about uh, the significance of an altar. Now, in the Old Testament, altars are built as uh, a type of table before the Lord. Uh, A lot of times we think of it as a as a a pile of stones, but that's uh, it's more than that. You'd need to think of it more as a table before the Lord uh, that is built around a fire, and it is as though you took this raised platform uh, either around a fire or beside a fire, um, and there you made a formal worship to the Lord. There are over 400 references to altars uh, in in the Bible, and the first altar is in Genesis chapter number 8. Noah comes off the ark, and what's the first thing he does after God has saved him? What's the first thing he does? He builds an altar unto the Lord. The same thing is uh, shown in the story of Cain and Abel, where they bring their sacrifices to the Lord. They prepare a table before 
the Lord. Uh, before the time of Moses, men made altars out of whatever uh, material that they, they had, and it would be built as a commemoration, a memorial to signify an encounter with the Lord and to signify this event, this relationship, this commitment, this covenant. Examples, Abraham in Genesis chapter number 12, Isaac in chapter number 26, Jacob in Genesis chapter number 35, David in 1 Chronicles 21, Gideon in Judges chapter number 6, all these men build an altar that is more than a place of sacrificial convenience. It is not made or constructed to make the process of sacrifice easy, although it may make it easy. That's not why it's constructed. It's constructed as a memorial to commemorate my heart for God. And so this altar, if you look at a definition in a Bible dictionary, you will find some version of uh, a sign of a person who is desiring to give themselves wholly unto the Lord and to memorialize that work, or that that giving of themselves. It is as though uh, you combined a place that you've made holy with a memorial that you never want to forget. There's both aspects of this. Here, I have made this hallowed unto the Lord, and I never want to forget that on this day, I have cast my lot with him. This is the image of an altar in the word of the Lord, and we, of course, reference the story of Elijah, who as a lesson in itself rebuilds the altar of the Lord before all the house of Israel, and God answers by fire. God will not build our altar. He will do what we cannot do, and that is he will place a lamb of sacrifice upon that altar. None of us have a sacrifice worthy of him and worthy to cover our sins. But the Lord, as uh, the angel says to Abram, uh, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. God will put a perfect lamb of sacramental, spiritual, and uh, mercy covering on that altar, but God will not build that altar further. God will answer your prayer requests with a sign of his glory and his presence, and just like happened in the Old Testament, just like happened in Solomon's temple, and just like happened on the day of Pentecost, God will let fire fall upon that altar. Are you seeing me? Are you seeing what I'm saying here today? But God nowhere will build you an altar. You have to look at your life. You have to decide what you're going to signify as dedicated unto God. You're going to have to make a decision that prayer matters. It matters enough that I'm going to fight for it. You have to make a decision. Prayer matters. Because if you don't fight for it, there's not going to be much prayer in your relationship with God. You have to decide. 
fasting is good for this old soul of carnality and sin. You have to decide that. And you have to fight for it. God will not pray for you. God will not fast for you. You have to decide the path of your life and make a real commitment that has weight, that has meaning. And you stand and say, this is holy unto the Lord. This is a memorial that not only is for him, but it's for me. It's offered to him, but it reminds me. Because if there's one thing I know about me, I need to be reminded. There are some things that God will not build for us. We all of us have a road to choose on how we're going to serve God. And I think, at least for me, the most uh, thought-provoking image of that is when Jesus says to the people around him that there's really two paths of uh, pursuit of the kingdom of God that they can try to choose. And one of them is known as a broad way, and one of them is known as a narrow way. Now, let me share with you a misconception I had for much of my life. And I thought about this as the way of the broad way being the way of sin and the way of uh, the like, you know, kind of live crazy, act out. If it feels good, do it. That was kind of like the way of the sinner or the way of the rebel. That was the broad way. And the straight and narrow is if, you know, you, you're disciplined and you go to church and, you know, <laughs> uh, you get the idea. It's like over here, you're a party animal. Over here, you, you lights out by 10 p.m. and you're quite pleased with that. You know who you are. Um, I, I thought of it that way. I, I thought as though Jesus were talking to a crowd of religious people and sinners. And over here, they're like, you know, let's party more. And over here, they're like, let's pray more. Y'all hear the joke about the, the, the parakeet who um, he was always crying out. Uh, when his owner had friends over, he was already always saying, let's kiss, let's kiss. Well, that embarrassed his owner. And so he, uh, you know, looked around, especially, you know, if he had, uh, you know, any, uh, anybody over, and this parakeet starts yelling, let's kiss, let's kiss. And he heard about somebody who's their parakeet said, let's pray, let's pray. And so he talked to him. He said, let's put our parakeets together. Maybe your parakeet will be a good influence on my parakeet. And uh, so they put the parakeets together, and the first parakeet said, let's kiss, let's kiss. The second, pa- para- <laughs> second parakeet said, praise God, that's what I've been praying for. <laughs> Yeah, so that was for the spiritual people. Um, The point is, is I always had this image of Jesus challenging the crowd as though there's the sinners, you know, the party animals, and then there's the religious people. And what Jesus is saying to the sinners is, y'all need to be more boring like the religious people. That is not how, if you actually look at the commentators and you try to understand the context, which uh, admittedly it takes time to care about context. In the beginning, you're just kind of, you know, using the the Bible uh, just uh, at a certain level, then you start trying to really get the the meat of it. Um, Everybody Jesus is talking to thinks they're religious. I want you to see this. They all have gone to synagogue from their youth. 
they all uh, consider themselves religious people. The sinners don't come out, as it were, to sit. Uh, it's, it's a religious, as it were, crowd. And Jesus is talking to religious people, and everybody there, including Pharisees, scribes, law, religious lawyers, they all think of themselves as some version of religious. religious. And Jesus says to them, look, you can make your religion about what works for you. And that's what most people do. It's this broad way of another type of self-soothing. Or you can challenge yourself and say, what is the work of God? Not about self, not about reassuring me, not about me and mine, but how do I promote the kingdom of God in my world? All of us are building something. All of us are choosing how we are going to live. And if we're not careful, we can get into a habitual type of relationship, uh, really that is more with other Christians and more with the church than it is with God because we have a form of godliness. We kind of have connections, but we're not pursuing the presence of God in our life. I want to challenge you, and I want to, if the Lord would help me to do it, I want to convey what serving God really feels like in the here and now. And I want to say it like this. The hard work of becoming who God created me to be, who God has called me today uh, to be, feels like a continual battle with the flesh versus the spirit. So true. It feels like this continual battle between what is easy and what is divine, the things of this world and the kingdom of God. And if I have any seriousness, if you have any seriousness, you are constantly, hear me, you won't be excited about this, but I think it, it is absolutely true. You will always be rebuilding altars in your life. Why do uh, things fall apart? Um, you know, altars are stones stacked and perhaps mortared together. Um, that is how we think of an altar. Where why, what would cause an altar uh, to break, cra- uh, to uh, break and crack and crumble? What would cause it to do that? Why does a mortared wall of stone uh, break apart and begin to crack? What happens to cause that? It's very interesting, and there's a lesson in that. It falls about. It falls apart because of the thermal cycle that. Is happening in the materials. The materials are getting uh, hot and expanding, and then they get cold and they pull back together, and that leaves tiny cracks. And they get hot, they expand, and the thermal cycle pulls them back apart. Altars decay in our life because we have a natural heat and cold cycle. We have years of struggle and years of blessing, years of passion and years of strain. And there's this natural thermal hot and cold and hot and cold and hot and cold. And it causes cracks to form in our altars. And it causes cracks to form in our consecration. And before you know it, you look at something you once were strong, an area you once were strong, a a, a prayer life, a life of devotion, a life of serving. And once there was fire on that altar, but now you look at that altar and it has begun to crack. It has begun to crumble. You need to stop and say, it's time to rebuild this altar. The lesson is not just in praying for fire. 
The lesson is not just in celebrating the miracle. There's a lesson in this. Watch me build this altar. Uh, What else do we build and God doesn't? If we use this teaching example of the altar and we admit to ourselves that God doesn't build our altars, we build our altars. He places a sacrifice on the altar. He answers by fire. The Holy Ghost will fall. But God will not set aside your mourning and say, I'm going to pray. You have to want it. You have to be changed enough by the love of God to say, I will strive to please you with my life. This, everything I have, my gifts, my abilities, everything I have, I give to you as a continual building project. It falls apart, I put it back together. It breaks, I put it back together. I did good for a while, and I fell on my face, but I'm not content to lay here. I'm rebuilding this altar. This is the tension that the Apostle Paul talks about, Romans chapter number 8, when even as an apostle, he struggles between this resistance within himself where he said, look, the good I know to do, there's some part of me that's like, no, I don't want to do it. And the thing I don't want to do, there's this part of me that says, yeah, that's what I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this, watch this, thermal cycle, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, that's always breaking down my altars. Yeah. Uh, we are always building a life for God. This idea is a little bit difficult to understand, and I am always afraid that after I try to explain it, that I will have this sense of failure like I did not uh, describe it right, but I I want to try to describe uh, this to you. The things we do for God are not about us being good enough where we get into the righteous people club. Um, If that was the work of the believer, um, there would have been no need for Calvary. There would have been no need for sacrificial lamb lamb of God. Uh, We were uh, just, uh, we would have been satisfied with the law because the purpose of the law would have been giving us a set of rules that we could keep, and then keeping those and thus uh, earning salvation. Uh, The law, however, very clearly is given so that we would learn that our efforts end in failure and we would look for a righteous lamb of God. That's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law was always an education in human weakness. Let me say that again. The law was always an education in human weakness. And you see this in the Old Testament because it was wasn't just a sacrifice that you would make if you fail to keep the law. You're given the law, this is how to do it, and you sacrifice anyway. That is one of the powerful lessons of the Old Testament covenant. It's not just sinners who offer sacrifice, even the high priest hmm, offers sacrifice. And uh, it's so important that he does it once for the nation and he does it once for himself because even though I've done my best to keep the law, after I kept the law as best I could, the law was an education in human failure and weakness. Therefore, I need a covering. And so uh, you must see what God has done for you, and you must ask yourself, what then am I trying to do for God? This is important. Stay with me. All spiritual understanding, all great theologies exist as 
tension between opposing realities. You do not just have judgment. You have judgment and mercy. You do not just have grace. You have grace and truth. Do you see? Uh, There is this tension. How do we find resolution between these opposites through Jesus Christ? Because he's the one that has reconciled. I know I'm in some uh, theology here, but just stay with me. I'm going to bring it home to you. It's reconciled in Christ. Well, if Christ has done the work for me to be saved, and if even if I did my best, it wouldn't be enough for me to be saved, why not just have a kind of get out of jail free card? And why should I even try to please God with my life? Because if there's one thing you will learn reading the New Testament, God wants your life to testify of his way in his heart. God is not happy when you live in unrighteousness. God is not pleased when you fall in immorality. God will challenge you uh, to do better. And yet, you couldn't save yourself. Do you see these two tensions that exist? And this is so important. I think so many people miss this. And they get the fear of the Lord, and they live with an Old Testament duty cycle because they do not understand New Testament worship. They do not understand love. They understand duty and fear. That's not all wrong, but it's primarily an Old Testament view of God. And here comes Jesus, and he says, I'm not calling you slave. I'm not calling you servant. I have a different relationship with you. I want to be your friend. All right, now let me try one more way to um, describe this. Human love is flawed. It is not. uh, Human love is not divine love. It's very flawed. Um, uh, I know when we get married, we say for better or worse. But what we're really saying is up to a point for better or worse. (laughs) I hate to say that when we have uh, newlyweds here today. Um, Just put your fingers in your ear when I say this. Um, Yeah, thank you very much. Um, That's not, there's very few people that can take too much pain without it malforming their soul. There's very few people. Um, And I I would like to think that, um, you know, we're all just infinite punching bags and nothing. But I'm telling you, someone, they treat you bad enough, long enough, enough, you won't even know who you are. You will have changed. So so, uh, human love goes like this. I'm going to do my best. (laughs) Smile at your husband or your wife and say, I'm going to do my best. That's funny. I don't care what y'all say. Uh, now, 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 I didn't tell him this, but if you push me far enough, I'm not taking responsibility for what I do. <laughs> Nobody's doing this here today, but I'm enjoying it no matter what. If you want to know what love is, you don't, you, you cannot, you cannot live with this threat type relationship where if you don't do this, this, and this, I'm out of here, you'll never know if they loved you. Why? Because they always had a risk of losing something valuable if they had to do it, and you would never know if they do it because they love you or they do it because life is easier with you. This is the rich person dating problem. How do you know they like you or they like your money? Well, this is how. You find them when you're poor. (laughs) That's my secret. You find them when you're poor. And then later on, when they take all your money, you least say you got the best years of their life. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Moving along. (laughs) 
But if you wanted to know how someone really feels, you have to be committed to them if they don't make you happy. Come on, right? Come on, I'm putting some heavy stuff on you right now. You would have to tell them, you have access to all I have. You have access to all my money. I want you to love me, but if you don't, you still have all my money. I want you to only give yourself to me. But I'm telling you right now that even if you run like a hussy all over town, forgive me, is that a bad word? I think it says exactly what I was trying to say. You should read what the Lord calls people in the Old Testament. Even if you run like a man dog all over town. I'm sorry, don't say wow. That makes me feel guilty like I've taken it too far. And my parents are here today. Jesus, take the wheel. Um, So the point, I'm trying to make a point here today. Even if you don't be, even if you aren't true to me, you still have access to me. You have all my money. And I will be committed to you. This is the lesson of Hosea. Come on now. I know some of you get nervous with this kind of preaching, but God doesn't. Read you some Hosea. Okay. Even if you are a prostitute and I am loyal, I'm committed to you. This is how you see love. Because if whatever he or she does after you've taken away all threat, whatever they do then, (laughs) that's what they really feel. You see, if you were committed to them, even if they acted out and they are now committed to you, you know they love you because they could have had the best of your possessions and done whatever whatever they wanted. This is uh, the whole image of Hosea, and I'm, I'm not talking about, preaching about Hosea today, but this idea of the Lord has paid the price for our salvation. That is not what is at risk at this moment because that is God's gift in our life. What you do now is not about fear. It's about whether or not you really loved him. That's hard, to, that's hard to face, isn't it? Because some of you guys are calculating right now. Well, does that mean this? Does that mean I can get away with this? Yes, you can get away with it. Yes, you can mistreat the Lord. People have been doing it for years. Yes, you can make a game of his covenant. People have been doing it for years. Yes, yes you can. But you cannot show the world a testimony of love for God if you don't rebuild altars in your life. You can't talk about how you love God if you shout in the service and then go out and do whatever your flesh wants to do. You can't talk about how much you love God because when you had the way to do, how shall we say, take advantage where you make grace into a formula of personal indulgence, that's what's really going on in the altars of your life. God will not build your altar. He'll put a sacrifice on that altar. He'll let fire fall on that altar. But you're going to have to want to please him with your life. What do we build? We build character. And the battle for character feels like this. I didn't do as good as I wanted to do in the last year. But you know what? I will not let this altar lay fallow. I'm rebuilding this altar right here. (laughs) 
Yes, God will forgive me again. That's not about me. That's about him. That doesn't make me good. That makes him good. Yes, God's mercy is new every morning. But if I'm going to build an altar that shows my true change in response to the love of God, I'm going to have to come back to this broken down altar. I'm going to have to repent of doing it wrong. And I'm going to have to try to do it right again. I'm going to have to get my morality sorted out. I'm going to have to build a prayer place in my life. I'm going to have to say my character matters. All right, so I'm, I'm using up all my time. Let me try to wrap this up here. Um, I will maybe uh, find a better way to describe this uh, next week, but I'm going to settle on that right now. I want to show you one more story of an example of something God will not build, okay? First, we talked about an altar. That altar represents the covenant that we make honoring God and what he has done for us. His covenant is not at risk. We're the covenant breakers. Right. Come on. God is not a man that he should lie. Um, uh, we're the covenant breakers, and we go back to our altar, and we rebuild that altar. What does the patriarch do after they make a mess in Egypt? They come back, and they rebuild their altar. What does uh, the next patriarch do when he uh, lies about his wife? They, yeah, they had a problem with lying about their wives, and so uh, what do they do? They come back, and they rebuild an altar. Uh, the next patriarch, he turns out to be a bit of a con man, and he slips off, and he suffers for the crop he has uh, planted, and uh, he comes back, and what does he do when he comes back? He rebuilds an altar. Do you see a theme here? God won't rebuild your altar. You made a mess, go back to an altar. Quit worrying about who knows the mess you made. You go back to that altar, and you say, my life got too hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. If I could have kept it hot, it would have just stayed at one place. It would have not back and forth, back and forth, but because of this thermal cycling in my life. Hot, cold, hot, cold. Prayed through on Sunday, backslid on Friday night. Ooh, I'm just, if I'm preaching to you, just let me be a blessing. Prayed through on Sunday, backslidden on Saturday night. Prayed, you see what I'm saying? Hot, cold, hot, cold. Your altars fall apart. You got to go back and say, I'm rebuilding this altar. What's another example of something God will not build? The story is shown in King David's life where he is uh, at a place of tremendous personal blessing. Um, he has solidified his throne. That's a big deal. Uh, the other claimants to the throne are all, they've all, he's been given rest from them. The enemies of the house of Israel, he's been given rest from them. Uh, he's built a palace and uh, he is in this palace and he realizes uh, one night that uh, he's in a palace and God's in a tent. But let me tell you a secret, just in case you don't know, um, God wasn't really in a tent. <laughs> but in the mind of David, as a symbol of devotion, God was in a tent. Let me remind all of you, God's bigger than a tent. <laughs> um, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. In fact, God does not exist in the world. The world exists in God. Uh, and David, however, thinks about the meaning of this because, watch this, there's something in the heart of David. He wants to do something for God. It's just in his heart. He wants to do something for God. Is he perfect? Not even close. He still wants to do something for God. Does he need to repent? On a regular basis. But he still wants to do something for God. Oh, God, give us a heart for you and your kingdom. In in Jesus' name we pray. 
And so he says, man, I just don't know if this is right that I'm uh, laid up in this palace and the Lord's in a tent. And so he calls the prophet Nathan and he, he says, look, I want to build a house for the Lord. This is not right. And the prophet's, uh, hmm, I own, you know, we'll, we'll think about it, pray about it. Typical answer from a, a reasonable uh, man, of, man of God. It's, well, let's, let's, let's think about it, pray about it, reflect upon it. You know, uh, fools rush in. Anyway, moving along. <laughs> and so the Lord speaks to the prophet about this and uh, he says this. Now, this is told, 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse number 4. The Lord says to Nathan, go tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Do you really intend to build a house for me to live in? Now, the subtext here is, huh, I, I haven't really thought about this. That's to my ears. That's how this sounds. Do you really intend to build a house for the Lord to dwell in? I have not lived in a house from the time I brought the Israelites up from Egypt to the present day. Instead, I was traveling with them and living in a tent wherever I moved among all the Israelites. I did not say to any of the leaders whom I appointed to care for my people Israel, why have you not built me a house made from cedar? I love this. I think there is, there's such a profound lesson in this that I'm going to be disappointed in advance that I didn't do it justice, but I'm going to give it my best shot, okay? The Lord's like, huh, I don't really need a house. You know why I don't really need a house? I hadn't thought about this. Um, you know, when it's cold outside, I don't really get cold because, you know, I am the cold. <laughs> huh, when it's storming, I don't really get upset. I am the storm. <laughs> you know, I don't really need shelter. I am the shelter. Mm. My God, about to preach up in here. I don't really need a roof over my head. I am the roof. What? You ought to write a praise and meal worship song right there. I've come to that dumb thing, but you wouldn't let me sing no matter what I do. I can't a rebellious spirits around here. Um, uh, this guy, it's almost as though read it, read it. In fact, have fun. Read it in various translations. It's almost like the Lord said, huh, okay, how about them apples? Um, have I mentioned to anybody anywhere that I was cold? I, I don't, I, I hadn't thought about this house thing. But there is something in the heart of David. I want to do something for the Lord. Now, God uh, not only can build his house, he had already built his house and was in the process of redeeming that house. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Sin had separated God from his house. He already had built his house. And um, David comes up with the idea to have this symbolic house. And the Lord's, okay, I hadn't thought about that. It's not really something I need. Um, but, ah, okay, um, here's the deal. Say this to my servant, David. Uh, I took you from the pasture and from your work as a shepherd to make you leader over my people, Israel. I was with you wherever you went, and I defeated all your enemies before you. Now I will make you as famous as the great men of the earth. I will establish a place for my people Israel and settle them there. They will live there and not be disturbed anymore. Violent men will not oppress them again as they did in the beginning. And during the time when I appointed judges to lead my people Israel, instead, I will give you relief. That's a good word. <laughs> 
I will give you relief from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that he himself will build a dynastic house for you. When the time comes for you to die, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed you, and I will establish this kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. I will become his father, and he will become my son. When he sins, I will correct him with the rod of men and with wounds inflicted by human beings. But my loyal love will not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. Watch what's happening here. David wants to do something for God. God's been so good to him. He just wants to do something for God. He, it's in his heart to do something. And so he settles on building a house. And God's like, hmm, I didn't actually know I, I, I needed a house. Uh, but I, uh, okay. But let me tell you, since it's in your heart to do something for me, let me talk about what I'm going to do for you. Yes, Our lives are building projects. What do we build? We build character. We build worship. This house is going to be a gathering place of the worship of the house of Israel. And this house is going to be where first the praises that reflect the tabernacle of David are going to be offered. And it is this house that God is going to watch as David leads all the house of Israel in praise and worship that he says that's how the church is going to feel. It's going to feel like a heart for God. Worship to and for God. That's what it's going to feel like. We don't build or God doesn't build us altars. We build altars. God did not build for us a temple. We built a temple. And so it is in our lives that if there is something in your heart that has been moved by all that God has done for you, you are invited to live a life of worship. You are invited to live a life of praise. You are invited to live in such a manner that your choices testify of God. You're invited to put his kingdom above your kingdom. You're invited to care about his church, his people. How's the kingdom of God doing? I know I live in a new house, but how's the kingdom of God doing? Is there something in my heart to do anything for God? We have to care about what we build. Because just as the patriarchs built an altar that God would not build, for them. And just as David built a house that God didn't even know he needed, there is something that happens in our heart when we want more of him and less of this world. We don't earn our salvation, uh, but we're builders and we build uh, a life of testimony to God. Let your light shine before men, uh, Matthew writes, in such a way that they see your good works and glorify. Glorify your Father in heaven. 
What does your life testify of? What kind of an altar are you building? What kind of a house of worship are you building? I want you to know our life should look like this. I have been so changed by God's love that everything I do is an attempt to to build an altar and build a place of worship for him. I'm not trying to be better than anybody. I'm trying to build an altar, and I'm trying to build a house of worship. Why do I turn away from things in my life? I'm trying to be saved. No, even if I turned away, that wouldn't be enough to save me. Only God could save me. But let me tell you why I'm doing it, because it's in my heart to build something that God is honored by. Let men see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Why does God give us these commandments? Is it to keep us in line, to control us? Is it punishment for when we mess up? Is it so we perfect ourselves? Is it a point system whereby we're good enough to be with the righteous people? If you think that way, you're thinking like an unbeliever, not a believer. Because unbelievers say Christianity is ultimately a religion like any other religion, which is a way to control the masses, a deluded way to find fulfillment. If you do it out of fear, you're living like an unbeliever even if you're a believer. You have to tell a love story with your life. And you have to say, I could do and be anything I wanted to be, but I choose to be here. I am not a slave. I'm part of the family. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We build. The choices I make is building a life. My prayer or my lack of prayer is building a certain kind of life. My character or my lack of character is building a certain kind of life. It is either giving God glory or it's exalting me. You cannot exalt exalt self and God with the same style of worship. you got to decide what you are going to exalt. You are a builder. You're building an altar. You are building a house of worship. God's not doing that for you. You are choosing a how to live. And you know what this feels like? Uh, the best way I can say it is it feels like a life of building and rebuilding, building and rebuilding, building and rebuilding. It feels like the spiritual discipline of correcting myself, repenting of my sins, and turning my heart toward God day after day, morning after morning, evening after evening. God, I've got to do better than I have done. It's a brand new year. I've got to care how kind of life I'm building. My life is not my own. I've got people watching my life. I've got a city that has in some way uh, influenced by the body of Christ. I am a part of my family, my friends, uh, everybody. I've got to glorify you. Uh, That means I've got to do better in 22 than I did in 21. I got to get control of this tongue because I can't say I have control of my tongue. Uh, I have control of my spirit if I don't have control of my tongue. Oh, just let that be a blessing to you. You know who you are. (laughs) If I don't get control of this attitude, it won't matter if I show up early and shout in front of everybody on on Sunday morning. I've got to get control of this attitude. Uh, I am building and rebuilding, building and rebuilding. Uh, Life tears it down. I build it back up. I build it back up. This is what it means to be faithful. Yeah. 
Let me give you some scriptures here. Musicians, you can come. Romans 5, verse number 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Really? You rejoice in your sufferings? Nobody in the history of the world read, ran the aisles on that scripture. We know that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see? Uh, This is what the the life of faith feels like. It's not all about mountaintops. It's about building and rebuilding, uh, overcoming suffering, uh, endurance, character, hope, God's love poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. Listen to Philippians 4, verse number 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fight to control your thoughts. Work on it. Rebuild it. (laughs) Do better. I know stuff happens. I know you have road rage. Don't act like you don't. I know people at work get on your last nerve. I know you have a boss who I know we got finally got some spirituality from. See what you did? I totally blame you for that. You have all this stuff, and you have to do what? You rebuild. I go back to my altar. It's kind of fallen in disrespair. I rebuild it. I choose to build worship in my life unto the Lord. God didn't really need my worship. Do you see? He didn't really need it. There is a whole heavenly host around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. He didn't need my worship, but I want to build him a house. My voice isn't very loud, but I want to add it to the voices of eternity that says, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I can't describe it. It's just in my heart to build a house of worship for the Lord. And God's like, huh, you know, huh, hmm, a house, okay, huh. Tell you what, while you're talking about building me a house, let me tell you about the house I'm going to build for you. I go to prepare a place that where I am, there you may be also. (laughs) If this were not so, I would have told you, while you're trying to build me a house as an act of love, you don't say you've been changed by the love of God and make no effort to build your character. Does that make sense? Don't say how you've been changed by the love of God and how in response that he first loved you, you've been totally spiritually revolutionized and then go out and justify your sin. Don't do it. Because that's like a person. That's like the story of Hosea. I'll take your salvation as long as I get to do what I want. That's not a love story. That's an Old Testament way of thinking which is why the house of Israel had a hard time with repenting of their sins and being baptized by John because to be baptized was what a Gentile did. 
Gentiles were baptized when they converted to Judaism. The Jews weren't baptized. But here comes, uh, here comes John the Baptist, and he says that the new suckers need to be baptized like you were a Gentile, like you didn't have any special insight with God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Go back to your altar. Rebuild it. Be baptized. And when people were ready to do that, now the Lamb of God for sinners slain, which takes away the sins of the world. All right, there's so there's so much there's so much beauty of the scripture in these in these stories. I can't say that I've been changed by the love of God when I take everything he has to give me and then I go live in immorality. I can't say that I love God when I am like the wife of Hosea who will take the benefits but make no effort to live a life of character and no effort to live a life of worship. God save me from that kind of reality. Instead, make me a person after God's own heart. Make me a member of the tabernacle of David. There's just something in my heart Lord, I know you're great and you know it, but I want to tell you you're great. It's just in my heart to build you a house of worship. I know you can, uh, you're surrounded by the heavenly host and they see you as you are. Man, I could never sing as good as they could, uh, but I just want to try for a little while to tell you I love you. I love you. I'm not just singing about it. I'm building character in my life, oh God. I've been changed by your love. I'm choosing morality. I'm turning my back on sin. I love you. At the end of the day, going back to the example of Hosea and his unfaithful wife, if she would have retained all her status and still been able to do whatever she wanted. And then she said, I know I can do anything, but I don't want that. I want you, and I want to be committed to you. And I want to show you day after boring day that you mean the world to me. Day after boring day after boring day. You mean the world to me. This is the most powerful I love you in the human language. I don't have to. I choose to. So I want to say to all of you who for years you have sought to know the Lord and you've had struggles and you, you're a little bit down on yourself. You're a little bit irritated at yourself. You're a little bit disappointed in some of the ways you've slipped. You're a little bit down on yourself. I want to say to you, you have an opportunity to show God that you've been changed by his love by going back to that altar and picking up those stones that have been fragmented by the thermal cycle of hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, and they've fallen apart. You have this opportunity to say, watch me build an altar. Day after boring day, I build this altar. And in this place that I've made sacred, in this place, this time I've set aside to know you, I lift up my hands and my heart and I say, if you never bless me again, you've done enough for me to worship you all eternity. I love you. I build character as an act of love. 
I turn away from sin as an act of love. I celebrate his glory as an act of love. I testify of his magnificent power as an act of love. What do I build? I build character. I build a place of worship in my life. God doesn't build character for me. God covers my sins, but I build character. I try harder. I start over. I'm repeating myself. Stand with me all across the house. Every one of us are challenged to live a life that tells God with every breath, I choose you. I choose your way. Let me end with one more scripture. Ephesians 4, verse number 1. Paul urges his followers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What are you doing, Paul? Paul is saying something to you in a roundabout way. It's possible for called people to live in a manner that's ashamed to their calling. And he's pleading with them and saying, look, I'm not telling you you're not called because you've had some, how shall we say this, bad days. I'm just asking you to rebuild. <laughs> Go to the altar. Try to do it right. Let God's love change you. This isn't about God catching Gomer, publicly divorcing her. <laughs> this isn't about Hosea bringing her to shame. <laughs> this is divine love, y'all. This isn't about him bringing all the elders and saying, shame on you. This isn't about God showing up with a stone and saying, you're worthy to be stoned. No, this is a different kind of love story. <laughs> it goes like this. Hosea shows up and she sold herself in slavery because she evidently is some type of an addict. And that is how she ends up in slavery. That's how, as a free person, you end up in slavery. And in some manner, some control is placed on her. And in order for her to have whatever she needs, wants, you know, I don't know, I say addict intentionally because I think it's a powerful image and drugs aren't modern. Drugs are as old as, honey, they've been smoking pipes for years. But anyway, moving along. <laughs> I want you to see, this isn't an image of Gomer showing up with the Sanhedrin carrying, a, 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 Hosea showing up with a, a stone in the Sanhedrin with them. This is... Hosea is showing up again and saying, she doesn't know how to love me, but I love her. And so I'm buying her out of your enslavement again and again. Gomer, could you ever find anything in your heart to say I've been so changed by this love that even though I know he's not given up on me, I'm going to reflect his love with mine? Gomer, don't you know by now God's committed to you? Don't you know by now that his mercies are new every morning? Could you be changed by love? Because this is what I want to end with. Until the believer knows how to be transformed by the love of God. They really don't have a testimony. 
They have another story of threat and fear, which is how the world operates. Threat and fear. You do for me, I do for you. Sound familiar? You scratch my back, I scratch your back. And here comes the prophet. I'll buy Gomer out of slavery again. Until you are living a love story back to God and building an altar and until you are sanctifying something holy in your life and until you are building the Lord a house of worship and you're like, I want to do something. I'm living this way for you. Your testimony is less than it could be. But the day you understand the transforming power of love, you're ready to let your light shine before men. They see your good works and they glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Lord Jesus, we call upon your name in this house. You know where each of us respectively are. You know the life we live. You know the reality of our circumstances, our trials, our struggles. I'm praying today, Lord, that we would build character in our lives. We would build altars in our lives. God, I'm praying we would choose worship in our life. We would build a house of worship unto the Lord. Oh, God, uh, we need to manifest uh, the transformation that comes by the power of your love in our heart. I pray here at First Church that we would be that kind of a witness for you. We've been transformed by the love of God and because of your goodness we go back to building character we repent of our sins we go back to altars we renew we try again we get back up and find ourselves made just in your justice by getting back up again and trying again be with your people give us your strength anoint us for your purpose in Jesus name we pray I feel the presence of the Lord here today. I, I, I know I've, I've laid some heavy, heavy thoughts on you today, and I, I don't really apologize for that. Let's do this right now. Our worship team is going to take us deeper in worship. If you have a need and you would like to join your faith with the church, uh, I'd like you to either step out uh, to this front and let some of our pastors anoint you with oil, or I'd like you to maybe join with somebody you're near and you're already doing life with them. You may be near your spouse or near your kids or with friends you're already doing life with them uh, would you would you reach out to someone would you maybe turn and find someone that you are you feel comfortable praying with let's turn this whole house into a great passionate cry toward God God we want to know you we want to please you we want to serve you we want to honor you oh God we want your name to be glorified in us and through us our worship team is going to take us into praise and worship but all of you strong in the Lord. I'd like you to pour your heart out to God here today. I'd like you to say, oh Lord Jesus, I need I you. I'm building you. an altar to you, oh God. Nothing. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.